So last night, probably around 1, 1.30, I got woken up with this excruciating pain in my stomach. And my first thought was, that's not good. <laughs> and then I started going through my mind, what did I eat? What did I eat that somebody else didn't eat in my family? Because why am I feeling so miserable right now? So I, I tried to go back to sleep, but it wouldn't let me. I said, oh, that's not good. Um, maybe I'm going to have to call Pastor Michael like 6 o'clock in the morning and let him know I can't be here. And boy, I'd love to have a video camera on his face at that moment. <laughs> so I got up and just said, what can I do? This is like, I, I don't know what to do for myself. So I prayed, of course, and I asked God to heal my stomach and let me get some sleep and be able to get in here this morning. And I went downstairs and I raided the cupboards and I just threw down some honey. I thought, you know, that's anti bacterial, if I got some nastiness in my stomach, maybe the honey will kill it. I don't know. I'm just looking for answers here. And I had some probiotics in the cabinet, which I didn't know I had. I threw a couple of those down, read for an hour or two, and then the pain subsided and I fell asleep. And then I woke up again around six and it hurt a lot less. So right now I'm like, well, the door's open. If I run off the stage, you know why. I just had a really weird night, and I wanted to let you know that I'm up here feeling really funny right now, but happy to be here. So I know I don't have to tell you to pray for me, because I know you'll, you'll already do it, and you're doing it. We've got a new book that I'm introducing to you this morning, the prophet Isaiah. So um, before we get into it, though, I have to give you a little background. If you've been with us for the last several months, you know the context of the book. You're there. But if you're just new with us, jumping into Isaiah can kind of be like cold water thrown in your face. Because Isaiah starts his book yelling at people. And it gives you the impression that these prophets are mean. I mean, you just open up the Bible and he's yelling at people. What kind of guy is this? That's not very nice. But if you know the context, not only would you not think he's unkind, you'd think, wow, these guys are patient. See, what happened hundreds of years before Isaiah is the kingdom of Israel, which God graciously gave to us through miracles, the people divided into two nations because of sin. The nation in the north was called Israel, and the nation in the south was called Judah, but they were both Jewish people. One in the north called Israel, one in the south called Judah. In Judah was the temple. That's where the Jewish people worshipped. So the nation in the north, the guy who ran it, Jeroboam, he said, you know what, if all my people keep going to the south to worship, I'm not going to have a strong kingdom. So he set up his own religion in the north, and they set up golden cows to, for the people to worship. So as soon as the nation in the north started, they turned their backs on God and started worshiping idols. It sounds, you know, wow, yeah, that makes good political sense, but real stupid spiritual sense. And with idolatry came all sorts of perversion and bad practices. When you give up God, you also give up the Ten Commandments, and righteousness and goodness just flew out the window. And the nation turned its back on God. So God kept telling them, and it started to happen in the South, too. He said, stop doing that. We have an agreement. You were going to walk right with me, and I was going to take care of you. But if you keep doing this, I'm going to send pestilence and plague and problem, and your enemies are going to come have their way with you. Stop. Repent. Repent. They killed the prophets. They ignored the prophets. This went on for hundreds of years. So finally, we're at the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lives during the time where God destroys the northern kingdom because of their sin. And he's warning the southern kingdom that they're going to be next if they keep doing what they're doing. So we're going to get into this. Isaiah is going to be yelling at people. 
But it's after hundreds of years of God's patience and mercy and graciousness where he finally says, okay, that's enough. This is it. It's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. Here's the last straw. And what Isaiah does is he says, here's what you've been doing wrong. And he gives some details. And here's what's going to happen as a result of it. So with that background in mind, let's get into the book. I've got a chart for you up here on the screen. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. This is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. It just starts out with those words. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. You can see that his reign, his prophet, prophetic reign, I don't even, his ministry lasted a long time. If you can see the chart here, and by the way, this chart, email the office, we'll send you a PDF of it if you'd like to have a copy of it. What you see here is Uzziah and Jotham, and they overlap in time here, just like Ahaz and Ajotham does, and then Hezekiah. This is Isaiah. He ministering the reigns of all of these kings. You also notice he started over here. The bottom is Judah, the top is Israel. Both countries existed. But he ministered during the reign of Hoshea, who saw the destruction of the northern kingdom. And it wasn't too long after Hezekiah that the southern kingdom was going to follow. So that's just to give you a little background on the history. A lot of crazy stuff going on. Isaiah is one of the most... I don't want to say favorite prophets. He's got one of the biggest books in the Bible. So he's well, his, his writings are well known. Um, chapter after chapter. And it seems like he's saying the same things over and over. And so we're not going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book. We're just going to look at some of the highlights and then move on to another prophet. This guy, Isaiah, he's also mentioned in the Chronicles and the Kings, which we finished a few months ago. This is the prophet that went to King Hezekiah because he told Hezekiah, get your house in order, you're going to die. He had some nasty disease. King Hezekiah, though, was a good man. He loved God. He was a good king. So he wept and he prayed to God. The Bible says he turned his face to the wall and he prayed. Isaiah had left. And he said, God, spare me. I'm your man. Well, why are you treating me this way? You can just imagine what he was saying, even though the words aren't in there. And while... Before Isaiah even got out of the palace complex, God spoke to him and said, go back and tell Hezekiah I've given him 15 more years. All this is recorded in the scripture. So we know a little bit about Isaiah before we get here. But history tells us something about Isaiah that's not recorded in the Bible. Though there is a verse in the New Testament that they say applies to him, even though his name isn't there. So I'm going to read to you from Hebrews chapter 11. See if you can figure out the part that applies to Isaiah. At least tradition says so. This chapter, by the way, is kind of like a summary of Israel's heroes and some of the things that they did, prophets and kings. And I'm jumping into the middle here because i got to keep it short. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions. Any idea who that one was? Daniel. Exactly. So his name isn't mentioned, but we know from the book of Daniel, he's the guy that did that. Shut the mouths of lions, quench the fury of the flames. Same book of the Bible, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, as they're also called. Some escaped the edge of the sword. 
whose weaknesses were turned to strength and who became powerful in battle. Samson, maybe? Routed foreign armies, the judges. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. That happened at least twice in the Old Testament with Elijah and Elisha. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. I don't know who he's talking about there. Some faced jeers and flogging, while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destituted, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. So it talks about all these stories, and we know some apply to Daniel, some Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, maybe Samson, maybe the judges. Where's Isaiah in there? Tradition says he was executed by being sawed in half. That verse is verse 37. They were stoned, they were sawed in two. They were put in prison. Tradition says that's how Isaiah met his fate. Hezekiah was a good, godly king. He ministered during his reign. But his son, Manasseh, was the worst king ever. He was evil, vicious, murderous man. And tradition says he killed his father's prophet, Isaiah, by having him sawed in half. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. John the Baptist comes to mind, even though he was in camel skin. Destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. This is how the world treats prophets. But then it says... The world was not worthy of them. How would you like God to say that about you? The world is not worthy of you. How would you like that on your gravestone? I mean, you think about the things that we pursue as humans. Here lies Steve Shermet. He made a lot of money. That's what we pursue. That's the goal in life. How'd you like to see that on your gravestone? So what? Who cares? Next gravestone? Here lies Steve Shermet, CEO and popular. Next, here lies Steve Shermet. The world was not worthy of him. Yeah, I'll take that one. That's the one I want on my head, headstone. What, wouldn't you like that to be said of you? That the world is not worthy of you? Well, I'm not a prophet. That could never happen to me. Oh, yes, it can you can be that person whom God says the world is not worthy of you. In trying to think of a way to communicate that to you, I found this poem online. Um, let me just read it to you. One song can spark a moment. One flower can wake the dream. One tree can start a forest. One bird can herald spring. One smile begins a friendship. And one hand clasp lifts a soul. One star can guide a ship at sea, and one word can frame the goal. One vote can change a nation. One sunbeam lights a room. One candle wipes out darkness, and one laugh will conquer gloom. One step must start each journey, and one word must start each prayer. One hope will raise our spirits, and one touch can show you care. One voice can speak with wisdom, and one heart can know what's true. One life can make the difference. You see? It's up to you. You can be that person that God says the world was not worthy of you. And hopefully by the time I finish my lesson today, you'll know exactly how to become that person. Well, I feel like I have to uh, make apologies for Isaiah. Only 
because if you don't know the context, and I shared that with you. Here's what prophets did. This was their calling in life. God spoke to them, and then they spoke to people, whatever God said. Usually, they pointed out people's sin. People, nations more than anything, and rulers of nations. So they pointed out sin. They pronounced the consequences of the sin, and then they promised hope. So they came on strong and hard, but all they did was tell the truth. The thing is, we don't like the truth. We like the truth when it makes us feel good, but we don't like the truth when it makes us look bad or feel bad. Some of these people didn't like it so much they killed the prophets, and nothing has changed. We may not kill prophets, we may not have the authority to kill prophets, but we don't like to hear what the Bible says when people tell it. Go up to somebody and say, hey, got a minute and I want to tell you what God says. Not interested. It's the first thing you'll probably hear. Not interested. Come again? You don't want to know what God says? No, not interested. Why? What if it was, oh, you know, follow my directions and you'll get a million dollars. Oh, I'm interested. Because they've heard before what God has to say and they're not interested. What, it's got to do with sin. It's got to do with me being bad and changing my ways. I'm not interested. They pointed out sin. They pronounced the consequences, and they promised hope. Why did the prophets do that, especially if they weren't interested? A prophet is a soul doctor. That's all. You go to the doctor and say, you know, doctor, I'm feeling a little funny. The doctor says, well, let me run some tests. And he runs some tests. He says, you know, I've got some really bad news. Never mind, not interested. We wouldn't do that because... We want to know what's wrong with us, and we're hoping the doctor can fix it. Imagine the doctor says, man, I've got some bad news. I'm not interested. But but, but wait a minute. Not interested. But there's a cure. I'm not interested. What would you think of that person? We're that person. The prophet points out the sin. Not interested. Here's the consequences. Not interested. But there's a cure. Not interested. That's what the prophets did. And they promised hope. We often forget that about the prophets. We always focus in on the ranting and the raving. But when they were done, they said, listen, God's got a huge blessing in store for you. So this morning, we're going to look at Isaiah pointing out the sin, Isaiah pointing out the consequences, and Isaiah offering hope. And it'd be fine and fun to talk about this because these people are dead thousands of years, ancient Israel. But we're going to make it current and contemporary, too. Because the same things they wrestled with, same things we wrestle with. Their sins are our sins. Their reactions are our reactions. So I want to make it contemporary so we can learn from Dr. Prophet Isaiah. So here's how the book opens up. I read to you the intro verse. This is when he reigned. Here's the vision. Boom. The Lord said, earth and sky, listen to what I'm saying. The children I brought up have rebelled against me. Cattle know who owns them, and donkeys know where their master feeds them. But that's more than my people, Israel, know. They don't understand at all. You're doomed. You sinful nation. You corrupt and evil people. Your sins drag you down. You've rejected the Lord, the holy God of Israel, and you've turned your backs on him. Welcome, Isaiah. Nice to, nice to see you. Got anything else you want to say? People who act this way don't want to hear this. I don't even want to hear this. He said, donkeys are smarter than you. 
They know the hand that feeds them. You don't. You've turned your back on God. A donkey would never do that to its owner. It knows where it's good. They got a nice stall. They get free food. Life is good. But Israel's turned its back on the Lord God. Now, I wish I didn't have to explain this. This should be common knowledge. But it's not. I do have to explain it. Because a lot of pastors and a lot of churches would now say something like, I wish it wasn't true, but anti-Semitism is true. See how the Jewish people are? Stiff-necked, rebellious, they turn their backs on God, and God gave them what they deserved. And there'd be their sermon, all anti-Semitic and such. Say, well, gee, Steve, that is what the Bible said. It's not what the Bible said. See, the Bible's a big book, and it happens to be Jewish-oriented. All the good stuff in there is, for the most part, Jewish, too. The bad parts, then, are also Jewish. But chapters 1 through 12, God denounces Judah, the Jewish nation. Chapters 13 through 23, he denounces all the other nations around Judah. But somehow they conveniently skip that part. Because it looks better for their anti-Semitism to have an excuse for their hate. God loves everybody equally. He condemns everybody equally. And he saves everybody equally. So if I had stopped right there, I might give some fodder to anti-Semitism. But remember, chapters 13 through 23, God denounces all the surrounding nations. Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Ethiopia, Egypt, Arabia, Tyre, to name a few. 13 through 23. In fact, if I stopped there, I'd still exclude most of you. It wouldn't feel current, because how many of us are from Assyria? Or Babylonia. Okay, so God condemned the ancient Jews. God condemned the ancient Mediterranean people. But we're all good. This is only a passage of Scripture. Let me read to you a little more universal passage from the New Testament. It says this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're no better than they were. Now, that's Romans chapter 3. But the Old Testament in Ecclesiastes says the exact same thing in a different way. It says, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. The Bible says everybody sins. It's true. Everybody does sin. I heard this guy on the radio, he was being interviewed, and he said he doesn't sin. He's some religious guy. And the guy who was interviewing him said, let's get your wife on the show. Let's ask her. <laughs> People can say they don't sin. All that means is they're delusional. That's all. Everybody sins. We can't help it. We're all made broken. If you don't believe me, don't get offended because I'm in the same boat as you are. I'm not making... We're all like this. But if you don't believe me, simply try to stop doing it. That's all. Try. Try not to get angry one day or have a selfish thought. Try using your checkbook to feed poor people because sin isn't just things we do, it's things we don't do. So, if you don't think you're, you're, you sin, try to just be perfect for a few days and see if you're perfect. I think you'll agree with me. Oh, doctor, that's bad news. Yes, it is. I got some more. Because this is what these prophets do. They lay out the bad thick, but then they pronounce the cure. So let's continue with the bad thick. What I'm going to do is continue reading in Romans. Romans is like a chapter, this chapter in Romans looks at humanity. 
This chapter is mostly non-Jewish oriented, and then the other chapter is mostly Jewish oriented. But this looks at humanity and says, these are all the evils of humanity. Some of them are going to make you squirm in your seat. Some of them won't because you won't think they apply to you. Some of them might make you uncomfortable because you don't think they're wrong. But bear with me. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. What that means is, the creation itself testifies to the fact that there is a creator. So how can that be, Steve? Let me give you an example. I'll be right back. You're welcome to come up and see this closer after services. But if you can't see it well in the back, what you got here is a man sitting down holding two tablets. He's got a beard on his face, and the tablet has a bunch of what looks like hieroglyphics on it. You just have to be a little biblically literate to know you've got Moses sitting here holding the Ten Commandments, two tablets of stone. This is a sculpture. I can't sculpt, but from my opinion, that's not a very good sculpture. I've seen better. I'm a realist. I like the stuff to look good and authentic. I don't like abstract stuff very much. But it's a famous sculptor. I've seen this guy's name on the internet when I went looking for it. This was my grandfather's. I inherited it. But where did he get it from? Well, let me tell you. He was out in the desert one day, and he saw this rock. He was like 10 or 11 years old. And he drew a big circle around the rock, and he visited every month for the next 40 years. And the wind and the rain and the sun, over time, began to whittle out this shape. And by the time he was 50 years old, he took it home and had a famous sculpture. It's a remarkable feat of nature. That doesn't happen every day. What are you laughing about? You don't believe me? Do you believe? Does anybody believe me? You're not gullible, are you? You're like, no way, that would never happen. But doesn't evolution teach that's exactly what happened? But then again, it wasn't to a statue. It was to Moses himself. So we would never believe that would happen. But a few years of public education and enough brainwashing will think it actually happened to humans in general. See, when I look at the created world, its complexity, its amazingness, when I look at human beings, which are the pinnacle of God's creation, there is no way I can believe you happened by accident. And by the way, there's lots of you. So how did this all happen? There was a big glob of glue, goo, and lightning sparked it, and it burped. Don't even ask where the goo came from, because that ruins everything. <laughs> but there's the goo, and it burps. Okay, let's just say now there's life in the goo. How does that make life? 
It doesn't. It can't. It won't. But let's just say it did. Great. Now what? How do you stay alive? You eat, you drink, you sleep. Did the goo eat? Did it have a mouth? Was there food for the goo to eat? And if it ate, did it have goo goo? Because that's how life is. You take, you give out, right? You see, it's impossible. And let's just say even that happened. How long did he live, Mr. Goo Goo? And how did he reproduce? Did he find Mrs. Goo Goo? So it happened twice. It's ridiculous to think that you are the byproduct of billions of years of accidents. You know, I've got this really cool phone. And I like it because it takes high-def photos and high-def video. It's a phone that takes a video. How cool is our country? That is just so cool. But you know how I determine if something takes good photos or good video or not? By how clear it is, based on what my eyes can see. After all this technology, they're finally coming up with things that can take imagery as good as the human eye. This happened by accident? No. Culmination of human ingenuity over thousands of years finally made something almost as good as my accident. I can't believe it. I just can't. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So the Bible says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So men are without excuse. Atheism is a rather recent phenomenon, and there's not that many atheists in the world. I forget the statistic. Somewhere between 10 and 20%. So let's just say 10% of the world are atheists. That means 90% of the planet either are believe in some sort of God or are open to the concept. Atheist is, is a very new phenomenon. It's very hard for somebody to be an atheist. You've got to work really hard at it. But even though people believe in God, that doesn't mean they follow God. And that's where the rest of this goes. And although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So humanity has no excuse. There's abundant evidence to the nature of God and the creation of God, but humanity has turned its back on God. And one of the evidences of abandoning God is idolatry. It's a byproduct. Almost every culture throughout human history, if not every culture, I've read a lot of history, but I'm not a historian, but I've read a lot of history. And I cannot think of one culture that has not had idolatry. There might be one, I just don't know about it. Until modern times, other than Israel, who started with idolatry, got away from idolatry, and then went back to idolatry. So even the one people chosen by God to know better, why are we called? Why is that part of our, our human nature? Why do we want to worship things? Ah, because God made us to want to worship, but not things. And when we refuse to worship him, we end up defaulting into worshiping something. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So we start making things. We make frogs out of clay. We bake them and we put them up on a pedestal and then we pray to them. Brilliant. 
brilliant. Some people make statues of men and then worship them. I guess we got to worship something. Well, it goes on, gets even more difficult to read. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. So the first consequence or byproduct of turning your back on God seems to be idolatry. But almost all of human idolatry also ties to sexual fornication. So the next thing that seems to be on the list is sexual impurity. For degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Now, if you read through the Torah, the, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there's a list of approved and forbidden sexual practices. I don't want to go through them. They are definitely not rated PG. And most of you would agree, if you read the list, you'd read the list like this. Ooh, they did that? Ooh, who would do that? But that's only some of the list. As the list goes on, you're like, oh, I didn't know that was wrong. Maybe I shouldn't do that. So the list has both extremes. There's stuff on there that you and I would say, ooh, and other stuff on the list that you and I might do if we didn't know God said we shouldn't do it. God regulates all morality. And so I'm going to read to some of the things in here that some of you are going to say, ooh, people do that, which you already know. And some of you are saying, I didn't know that was wrong, or I don't think it is wrong. You can think whatever you want. I'm just telling you what God says. Maybe his opinion will count too, tongue-in-cheek. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Um, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, verse 26. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. First byproduct, idolatry. Second byproduct, sexual impurity. But it doesn't end there. Now it gets really uncomfortable. Because in that list, and I didn't read most of it from the Torah, I just read the Romans part, you might agree and say, yeah, I wouldn't do that, that's wrong. But now I'm going to read a list that you're going to say, oh, I do do that. And it's wrong. And it's in the same list. It's funny, we can get all high on our horse and say, yeah, murder's wrong, I would never do that. Burn him at the stake, kill him. But what if we do something lower down on the list? Well, let me read to you. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, and depravity. Like what? Well, let me read to you. They're full of envy. That made the top of the list? That's right up there with sexual perversion? Yeah. And idolatry? Yeah. I would never worship an idol. I would never be a pervert. Envy. Well, I don't like the list. <laughs> Murder. I would never do that. Good list, Steve. Strife. 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 You know, 
You've probably seen it in your own family. You've probably seen it in your workplace. You've probably seen it at school. But people fight about the dumbest things. As pastors, there's only one thing that ever wants me, makes me want to resign. It's a dumb thing people fight about. I don't want to resign if people fight about important things. That's something that I want to help with. Maybe I can be a peacemaker and give some wisdom. Maybe. But the dumb things that people fight about, ugh, strife. What is it about us? We're just not happy unless we're fighting with somebody about something. Now, let me ask you a question. If you understand what I'm saying, maybe you don't feel that's you, but if you understand what I'm saying, let, let me see your hand. We're not happy unless we're fighting with something. Okay. Now, how many of you are ever happy fighting? Raise your hand. So why do we fight? Because I told you before, we're broken. It's sin. That's one of the evidences of sin. We hate fighting, but we fight. Well, if we hate it, why do we do it? Well, you know, it's always the other person's fault. <laughs> Envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Oh, it even gets worse. They are gossips. Next week, I will talk to you more thoroughly about gossip. Maybe I shouldn't have warned you. <laughs> what a perfect opportunity to stay home. They are gossips. By the way, if you stay home, we're going to talk about you. <laughs> they are gossips. They are slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. That might apply to you, but not to me. <laughs> they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Do you think that was written for three-year-olds? Uh-uh. At least for people old enough to know better. Ah, eight-year-olds. <laughs> I still got parents. You still got parents. You bend over backwards to be respectful. Mom, not a word. <laughs> we'll talk later. <laughs> Honor your father and your mother. It's one of the top ten. It's one of the top ten. And it's on the list of things we don't do. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. Okay, Isaiah, Paul, I've heard enough. I'm not happy anymore. Stop! We're almost done. <laughs> I've already gone through the list of all these things that God says are evil that you and I do every day. The job of the prophets is to point out sin. They just did it. I just read to you their words. That's all I did with a little commentary in there. Then they pointed out the consequences. Byproduct of sin. Sometimes it's easy to see. Sometimes it's not. If you know anybody who has a drug addict in their family, the havoc that wreaks on the rest of the family. That's an easy byproduct to see, a consequence of seeing how many lives it ruins. It's not just one person. 
It's my body, I can do what I want with it. No, you're ruining your life affects everybody else's life around you. And all sin is that way, but sometimes we can see the consequences and sometimes we can't. How about when an entire nation sins against God? Here are the consequences for Israel. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Your country has been devastated. Your cities have been burned to the ground. While you look on, foreigners take over your land and bring everything to ruin. Jerusalem alone is left, a city under siege, as defenseless as a guard's hut in a vineyard or a shed in a cucumber field. If the Lord Almighty had not let some of the people survive, Jerusalem would have been totally destroyed just as Sodom and Gomorrah were. The consequences of sin are war and devastation. Most of the globe right now is suffering from war and devastation. I'm thankful that in our borders we are not, but we are sending our children over there to fight. So even we are suffering from the devastation of war and its consequences. When a nation rejects God and embraces evil, war and its devastation are often the consequences. One of the weirdest things in Isaiah and in life, you know they say truth is stranger than fiction? One of the weirdest things in Isaiah is Isaiah just told us how much these people have turned their backs on God, how much they despise God, they worship idols, they've done evil. But in the same chapter, he talks about their religious practices in the temple in Jerusalem. Why are they going to the temple in Jerusalem? There are, there's an industry of God-haters who worship God. In their own way, at their own speed, why do they do that? I don't know. Maybe it makes them feel like they're okay. They can sin Monday through Friday and confess their sins on Sunday and everything's good. Maybe that's why. I don't know why. But it's a fact. People make up their own religion and pervert God's religion, and it makes them feel better. That's what these people were doing. God says, it's useless to bring your offerings. I'm disgusted with the smell of the incense you burn. God commanded offerings and incense, but now he's saying he doesn't want it because it's coming by people whose hands are stained with blood. Imagine going out into the marketplace, robbing three people, shaking them, killing them dead, taking their purse with some of that money, buying a cow and offering it in the temple for the forgiveness of your sins. And lifting your hands up to God covered in blood. Yeah, God wants that. <clears throat> I guess sin just makes you stupid. So God tells Isaiah, tell these people, I don't want their worship. I cannot stand your new moon festivals, your Sabbaths, your religious gatherings. They're all corrupted by sins. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I'm not even going to look at you, no matter how much you pray. I will not listen because your hands are covered with blood. So there's this concept, this thing in humanity where we turn our backs in God, but we're still religious. It's weird. I, I don't get it. God's saying he doesn't like that. He wants religious people in the sense of people to worship him, but only for true, for realsies. People who really believe in him, who really try to follow him, not hypocrites. Uh, Yeshua put it this way. This is what he said about worship. The hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, for reals. That's what God wants. 
So Isaiah said, listen, here's all your sins, here's all your problems, now let me tell you how to straighten them out. You came to the doctor, he diagnosed you as terminally cancer of the soul. You will die. But here's the cure. I'm in verse 16 of the first chapter. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. You know, if you're the type that takes notes or writes in your Bible, underline or circle the word learn. It's a process. It's a job. For people who want to repent and change their ways, they might not know what good is. And it might not come naturally. So God says, learn to do good. Seek out justice. Go looking for it. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah said, if you repent, you'll be cleansed. Well, what is repentance? Repentance is stop doing bad, start doing good. It's really that simple. That is the cry of the prophets. Repent. You realize when John the Baptist, the most famous of all the prophets, came into Israel, what his first words were? Repent. And when Yeshua went public with his message, Jesus, you know what his first words were? Repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent, repent, repent. All the prophets said repent. The Hebrew word actually means to turn around. So God envisions us going in the wrong direction. He's over here. Our backs are to him. Envy, greed, gossip, strife, idolatry. This is our direction. Woo! God says repent. Righteousness, truth, loving your neighbors yourself, selflessness. God's on this side. Now, a lot of us, we like to stand in the middle. And we see God over there. We see a little envy over there. Ah, a little charity over there. And we try to dabble in both worlds. Can't sit on the fence with God. Sitting on the fence, people say, is often indecision. It's not indecision. It's a decision. Right? Waiting to make a decision is making a decision. And the decision's no. Hey, I've got a job. Be here tomorrow at 6 if you want it. You show up at 6, you've made your decision. But you can't call and say, I'm still thinking about it. Because thinking about it means you're not showing up at 6. God's the same way. He says, make a decision. By the way, I do think he gives us time to think about it. You can't stand here forever, though. The problem is most people who are standing here aren't thinking about it. They're just chilling. Coasting. It's a dangerous place to stand. Never know when it's going to fall underneath you. So repentance means stop doing evil, start doing good. Well, what's good? we got to learn. But I gave you a list of bad, so good would be just the opposite, wouldn't it? Yeah. Envy? Don't envy. Greedy? Don't greedy. <laughs> strife? No strife. Deceit? Honesty. Gossip, keep your mouth shut. Slander, only talk nice about people. Insolence, have a better attitude. Arrogance, humble yourself. Boastfulness, keep your mouth shut. Disobedience to parents, obey them. Heartlessness, have a heart. 
grow a heart. Some of these things take a little effort, but it's definitely worth pursuing. So, we saw the sin, we saw the consequences. The consequences are when a nation turns its back on God, devastation and war will follow. Now Isaiah offers hope, and we're just rolling right into the next chapter. After laying all that heaviness on them, he doesn't leave them depressed. He says this. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. Here's the part I really wanted to get to you. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, and they will train for war no more. So the consequence of sin results in judgment and war. The consequence of following God, they don't even have war implements anymore. We don't need swords anymore. Turn them into pruning hooks. We don't need them. When we walk with God, this is not an offer. This is a prophecy for Israel that the day would come when she would see war no more that God would redeem them. But the road from here to there is paved with death and turmoil and destruction. Why? Well, we bring it on ourselves. All these wars I talked about, God didn't start them. We start them by not doing what he says. What are the wars being fought over? Like, we don't even know, do we? (laughs) Let me give you a summary and a conclusion. Let me just read to you what I wrote. Ancient Israel had rejected God. They embraced evil, idolatry, sexual perversion, and all the other vices mankind embraces. They rejected God and put a phony religion in its place. God sent Isaiah to warn them of the consequences of their sin. But they rejected Isaiah's advice and suffered the devastations of war. But Isaiah also promised hope. They would one day come. The day would come when true religion would arise. The law would go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And during those days, war will end. Swords will be beaten into plowshares. The world today must learn the lesson that ancient Israel did not learn. You know the saying, it's not from the Bible, but it's very true. Those who do not learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. Well, our nation may be headed for more war. I don't know. There's actually not much I can do about it either. I'll do the best. I'll vote for people that share biblical values and my values, and I'll do the best I can to be politically active, but can I really steer this nation? I don't know. That poem I read said maybe I can But before I'm worried about their nation, i got to worry about me. So there's something that you can do for you, like I can do for me. Same verse, let me just read it again. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. 
rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God set a system in place to purify us from our sins. An innocent sacrifice could die and shed its blood in our place. The Torah puts it this way. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it's the blood that makes atonement for the soul. But that was just a picture of the coming Messiah whose life would be poured out, his life's blood would be poured out for us, his life for our life, so that we might have atonement for our souls. Part of walking with God is trusting him to save you. That's his way of saving you. He sent his own son to die for your sins. If you're willing to repent and follow him, make him your Lord, you will be saved. If not, not. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, the lessons of Isaiah, they're harsh. But help us not to cringe from them because they make us uncomfortable but to embrace them so that we might seek out and receive the cure. Thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth about ourselves. Thank you for loving us enough to be patient with us while we sit on the fence to decide. Thank you for being loving to send us men like Isaiah. And above all, thank you for the love you showed us in sending Yeshua to die for our sins. May we ever be worthy of the love he has shown us. Amen. May the Lord bless you, and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. God bless you. See you next Sunday.